Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm pleased today to share a session from the 2019 IO Combinations 360 event, where Dr. Darren Hodgson of AstraZeneca gave an update on AstraZeneca's work in PARP inhibition. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for the introduction. Um, I'm really pleased so many of you come back with the the quite cryptic title that's in the uh, program at present. So I'm going to specifically talk around um, patient selection markers for PARP inhibitors and strategies to target the, the phenotype that we think is indicative of a response to this kind of intervention. So we'll talk a little about how we think PARP inhibitors work as monotherapy and then why that then leads you into uh, an exemplar of ovarian cancer as a place to test these drugs uh, and what happened looking at this theory of homologous recombination repair deficiency. We'll focus mostly on monotherapy and then if I'm not too verbose, we'll maybe spend a little bit of time discussing the combination theories. So um, for people involved in oncology R&D who are not in, in IO, there is an alternative way of looking at tumours. They're not necessarily just hot, cold, or somewhere in between. Folks involved in DNA damage and response tend to think of things in terms of how, um, how the tumours respond to insults in terms of DNA damage, what processes are involved, and what defects are inherently present in those tumours that may may give us a chance of a sensible therapeutic intervention. So this slide is a bit busy. I apologize. It's got lots of acronyms, but I did need to get my own back a little bit on you folks. So um, you're just going to have to live with it. So on the left, we've got SSBs. That stands for single strand breaks. So th this is a type of DNA damage that happens all the time. Folks have estimated maybe around 10,000 events per cell per day here. Uh, and this type of DNA lesion is, is dealt with by a pathway called base excision repair, BER, and a principal player in this that kicks that whole process off is, is PARP, so PARP. The other part of this complicated slide that we're going to think about a lot is the, on the far right, so double strand breaks, or DSBs. So these are lethal to cells. This is when um, the DNA basically has lost its way because both strands are broken. So how on earth is that going to get put back together correctly? So there is a high fidelity mechanism for putting that DNA back together. It's referred to as homologous recombination repair or HRR. That's when you pay a lot for the plumber to come in and fix your pipes. Uh, if you can't afford that, then you have to go for the sort of cowboy, um, cowboy DNA repair, and that's non-homologous end joining, and, and there your pipes just get jam-packed together in any way, but you can just about get by with your plumbing afterwards. So the theory behind PARP inhibition really relies on, on intervening at the first step in um, recognizing and kicking off single-strand break repair. So what the PARP enzyme does is surveys the genome. When it sees a single-strand break, it binds to it, and it would normally kick off the repair process. But if a PARP inhibitor is, pre is present, it traps it, and you basically have a bulky adduct sat there on the DNA, and when the cell tries to replicate, this can become a double-strand break. As we just heard, this double-strand break isn't necessarily a problem if your um, high-fidelity DNA repair is in operation. So if you can do uh, homologous recombination repair, in other words, if you're proficient in HRR, uh, the cell can survive, the DNA is correctly repaired, and you move on. 
if the cell, or specifically a cancer cell, is deficient, so it's homologous recombination repair deficiency, or HRD, then it becomes reliant upon the error-prone DNA uh, repair mechanisms, and, and can eventually this can lead to mitotic catastrophe and cell death. So it was really this, this theory that lies, beh lies behind the, the concept of synthetic lethality, which was, uh, I, I guess, the major experiment published here that, that everyone knows about is shown on the, um, on the left as you look at it. So there's an experiment with embryonic stem cells that are isogenic. They either have one good copy of uh, BRCA2, two good copies, or zero good copies. And what you can see is that the, the cells that have no good copy of BRCA2 are, are nearly a thousand-fold more sensitive to PARP inhibitors than those with either one or two good copies. And so the direct translational corollary of this was, was hoped to be that if you gave these drugs to a patient with, um, with breast cancer or ovarian cancer with a germline BRCA mutation, the fact that um, the, the second copy of the gene was lost in the tumor would give you a similar therapeutic index in the patient. And so you, you'd be able to kill the tumor cells uh, shown here for a breast cancer patient in, in pink that are, are, have no good copy of BRCA and a homologous recombination deficient, but that you would basically leave the rest of the cells in the body intact. And then a few years later, that concept became extended phenotypically to um, two somatic events in, in the BRCA genes, and that's certainly been vindicated in the ovarian cancer data. So the original proof of concept um, studies were done in, in the right patients, the, the patients where if you don't see anything, you, you really should be walking away from your hypothesis. On the left panel there, we have the data from, from Andy Tutt uh, and the breast cancer, and on the right, Bill Orday and, and ovarian cancer. And you can see that there were a good number of responses in, in patients with both germline BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations consistent with the hypothesis. Interestingly, though, on the bottom panel here, we have a study um, led by uh, Karen Gelman in Canada, which expanded that theory into unselected ovarian cancer patients. So here you've got patients with and without germline BRCA mutations. And although you can see that the um, ORR was much higher in the, in the mutated um, subgroup, there's a significant response rate in ovarian cancer patients that did not have germline BRCA mutations. And there was a good sort of translational um, package as to why that might be. Um, sort of less famous than the Pharma et al. paper, but no, no, nonetheless important for the development of PARP inhibitors is the panel there on the left, which showed across um, a large number of cell lines in a, a clonal survival assay that basically there was a great correlation between sens relative sensitivity to platinum-based therapy uh, and PARP-based therapy. So in other words, going where platinum works could be a good place to go with a PARP inhibitor. Then there was a potential causal explanations published in the literature there in terms of um, preclinical mechanisms, why that might be the case. Uh, and, and even better, there was some indication that these uh, lesions in those, those pathways actually existed clinically, in, um, particularly in high-grade serous ovarian cancer. So this really all comes together in a, in a phase two um, study that was referred to as, as study 19 to look at the homologous recombination deficiency hypothesis in, um, in ovarian cancer. So there was clinical selection in the study design. Patients had to be um, initially platinum sensitive and then, um, and then platinum sensitive on 
um, repeat treatment. And then if they were in response, then they would be treated with um, the PARP inhibitor on one arm with placebo as a control arm. So this was really a, a study with prospective um, selection on clinical parameters. Um, and then there was a, a secondary endpoint retrospective uh, molecular analysis for homologous recombination deficiency. And it's interesting, although this is um, just over 10 years old, we, we had to remove that co-primary from this study at the time. And the reason for that was that NGS just didn't work on formalin-fixed uh, tissues at the time, which gives you um, this gives you a feeling for how fast things can change and how important those changes can be. So the theory still persisted, and we were basically waiting for those kind of technologies to be developed. And this is um, another way of, of, of thinking about this. So, so one, one thing um, that we, we tend to do in the field is because um, you know, words are, are binary. We, t we kind of tend to think of things as being positive or negative, black and white, but obviously the real situation isn't like that. So this is kind of how I think about the whole HRD ovarian cancer situation, so that we really are thinking about um, the strongest version of the phenotype being BRCA-mutated tumors, that in this particular study, study 19, we, we've had a go at doing selection by clinical selection, and then there's an open question, really, which is, can we do something in the middle between BRCA mutations and clinical selection that is sufficiently differentiating to have um, you know, value to the clinical community? And so um, what we did with this study um, a couple of years after it finished when the technologies were available was we to look at the two main hypotheses about how you might identify those patients. And it really falls into two buckets. So one is a, a sort of causal inference. So following the idea of um, loss of function mutations in BRCA1, BRCA2, what if you like are the other genes there? So the PALB2, BRIP1, et cetera. Or for those of you not familiar with the field, you might want to just say BRCA3, 4, et cetera, that kind of thing. So look for causal events that might be associated with sensitivity. And then the other bucket on the right is to look for the phenotypic effect of, of that kind of um, deficiency in DNA repair. So effectively, look for a, a, a genome that looks like it's been put back together um, by someone deficient in the art of homologous recombination. So what we showed in 2015, uh, the full publication I think, I think was last year, was um, retrospective analysis of the original data using both of these theories. So what you have here going from, from top to bottom is the original study 19 data with a, a, a reasonably good hazard ratio of PFS 0.35. Break that up by the principal biomarker of BRCA mutations, and you, you'll split up there to 0.18. Um, in the BRCA mutated population, 0.54 in the BRCA wild type population. And then what we did, um, specifically looking at the whole study through the, through the lens of a foundation medicine analysis, was to specifically hone in on the BRCA wild type population and ask ourselves whether or not we could identify a population with a BRCA-like effect within that, um, prospectively identifying the genes and then looking to see whether there are lots of function mutations there. And so this ended up not being very many patients. So this is HRRM, so homologous recombination repair mutated. It's presented here as a group, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not a lot of patients with mutations in the same gene. It's different, different genes, different mutations. And if you repeated the whole study, 
you probably get a similar number of patients, but they probably have mutations in different genes. So it's very hard to infer anything specific about any one gene being correct. But what it did show, and this was subsequently vindicated in other PARP inhibitor studies, that there was a, uh, a seemingly uh, BRCA-like effect in that subpopulation, and patients who didn't have those mutations were less sensitive to PARP inhibition. And then we did the same thing, looking at the effect um, hypothesis, so the phenotypic effect on the genome. And here we used the, it's referred to as the Myriad HRD assay. So this is a composite of three measures of genome instability, um, genome-wide LOH, telomeric allelic imbalance, uh, and large-scale state transitions. So the same thing here. Um, jump down from your um, whole intent to treat population, look at your biomarker evaluable population, and ask the question in the BRCA wild type population, what, what do you get if you use the, the binary cutoff for this particular assay? Uh, and you got more patients, maybe twice as many patients, but you didn't get, at least in this data set, you didn't get a BRCA-like effect. The effect went in the right direction, but it was not as strong as using the causal, um, causal inference method. And so what we like to do with these kind of markers is to try and work out you know, what is causing that um, HRD phenotype in, in those patients. So this slide uh, shows you the, the, the score, the HRD-ness, if you like, on the y-axis, and then the different patient populations within the study uh, grouped together. So you can see that all patients have um, a distribution of scores, many below the red line. The magical line for this assay is 42. Um, I, I don't know if that has any link to Douglas Adams, but it is the, the magical number for the HRD score at present. If you look at the patients with a BRCA mutation, as you would expect, most of them have a score greater than 42. Those with HRR mutations pretty much distributed around that red line. Um, but most interestingly is if you have a BRCA1 methylation, then you also have a high HRD score. So a good chunk of what you're identifying with this method is, is uh, BRCA1 methylation. So this leaves a bit of an issue in ovarian cancer, is do you go chasing such a small population with HRR um, and mutations? Uh, and actually, the most progress, I think, um, with the HRM approach has actually occurred in prostate cancer. And this is a schematic of a design in prostate cancer which tries to pick in some of the learnings from study 19, both in terms of biology and also in terms of biomarkers. So what do you, what do, you do if, you, if you want to investigate um, a lot of potential genes, but you haven't got a great evidence base for any individual one? So what we, what we did with this study was to break up the statistical alpha from two populations. So there's a high confidence group of genes, that's cohort A, um, but we didn't want to leave the other patients behind, so there's a, an exploratory cohort B where we'll look at whether or not some of those genes will also sensitize to PARP inhibition. And similarly, how do you prepare for the future? When this study was, was set off, um, plasma testing for these genes wasn't ready. So we also prepared in a, in a similar way to study 19 by taking plasma samples from everyone who was screened. So not just on study patients, but everyone who was screened to see whether or not a plasma test in the future would give you the same population. And this. This slide just kind of shows us where this is taking us in terms of the patient selection markers. So a couple of years ago, 
Most patient selection for PARB inhibitors was firmly on the left-hand side there with blood-based tests and germline testing. And this helps us move towards a situation where we've got the blood-based testing, the tissue-based testing, and in the future, the plasma-based tests. So I think I just wanted for a second here just to take an aside for, for something that we, we don't often get to do in uh, translational medicine. We're, we're usually working with... Um, studies with um, short-term acute endpoints and small numbers of patients. So this was an analysis we did with um, study 19 many, many years later to see whether or not the same conclusions that you would draw looking at PFS would be matched if you had a much more mature data set. And because you stopped doing the scans, we couldn't use PFS much later. But what we did use was time to first subsequent therapy as a a sort of poor person's um, more mature PFS. So the endpoint data cutoff for the PFS was 2010. Um, for times of first subsequent therapy, it was May 2016. And what you could see here is that the pronounced biomarker effects that were so apparent on PFS in 2010 were much less apparent. So there's a regression towards equivalence, basically, for all of the biomarkers that you look at when you start looking at these long-term outcomes. And in addition, there were 16 patients on this trial who stayed on drug for over six years, 15 of them on the laparib arm, one on the placebo arm. Within those 15 patients that undoubtedly got long-term benefit, there were all flavors of biomarkers. So there were HRD negative, HRD positive, BRCA mutant, BRCA wild type, HRD mutated, and HRR wild type. So this is kind of uh, an attempt to show where we are now with the, um, um, the program here. So uh, we have monotherapy approvals in ovarian breast cancer, some very good data in BRCA mutated um, pancreatic, pancreatic cancer was presented from the POLO trial at ASCO a couple of weeks ago. In prostate cancer, we've got breakthrough therapy for BRCA and ATM mutated cases, and that trial's in progress. We'll just pause at the end, really, to, to think about what we're doing in the unselected space here. Uh, um, so there are combinations with abiraterone in, in prostate cancer. Particularly in ovarian cancer, there's probably two main hypotheses going along that we've already discussed a little today. So combinations with antiangiogenics and obviously um, IO agents or PDX agents. And what I'm really hoping in the next talk is that we get um, an explanation of how to do this rationally. Because at present, we have many um, theories at play as to why a PARP anti-VGF, why anti-PDL1 VGF may play well together, or even why all three may come together. But if we start thinking about the, um, um, you know, the addition of, 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 of therapies to Olaparib, we really need to understand which patients these additional therapies are adding, um, adding benefit for. They come with a toxicity um, or an adverse event profile, and they come with a, with a cost. And so there's a real question here as to which patients are going to need just monotherapy PARP inhibitors and who actually needs the addition of these um, other therapies. And this was my attempt just to, to put together the uh, sort of biomarker profiling here for PARPs, for PDXs. Uh, and, and for anti-angiogenesis. And I think the situation is really complicated. So we may have a, a, a reasonable idea um, for PARP inhibitors and for um, emerging data on PDX, but how we're going to put these things together to identify the patients that benefits from combinations is still a, a really difficult question. 
So just in summary, Laparib is firmly established as an effective treatment for BRCA-mutated uh, and platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer patients. Most PARP trials have taken a HRM-selected approach in prostate cancer. But when it comes to combination studies where we're looking at broadening the patient population who can benefit, we're going to need to understand how these biomarkers segregate across those populations and which patients benefit. We have active ongoing programs just to try and understand the interrelationships between these biomarkers, let alone how they play out in uh, um, efficacy uh, measurements for trials. And maybe I'll just stop there and see if there's any... Uh... Oh, I must do a thank you at the end yet. So uh, this is a cartoon on, on the right that um, actually did in 2009. It's played out, and I still don't think we've actually worked out fully the answer to this question that's being posed, which is HRD or not HRD. Thank you. Thank you. A great talk. Thank you. Are there any questions for Darren? Sure, I'll, I'll take a stab. So beautiful talk on PARP, but given that this is an IO combinations forum, yeah. I, you didn't really touch on why a PARP inhibitor would be a good combination partner for cancer immunotherapy. And so I wonder if you can take a moment and talk through whether there's a good rationale that PARP plus your favorite checkpoint inhibitor, for example, is going to work in patients outside of where PARP inhibitors already are shown to work? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. So I, it's interesting as I move through the company, people, people ask me that question from two different directions. So they say, why, why should I add a PARP inhibitor to my um, beautiful immune checkpoint inhibitor? And the guys in the PARP group say, why are we adding the IO um, flavor onto, onto the PARP. Uh, and, I, and I think the, the, the question there may be, may be slightly different. So I don't think it's a coincidence. Uh, we invite some discussion on this. So the places where PARP has worked, so if you think about ovarian cancer, breast cancer, uh, maybe now pancreas cancer, uh, prostate cancer, are places where, in the general population at least, the ICIs have not done so well. So I, I think, do you want to come back on that? Or do you want to <laughs> Well, but because I think that you just raised four really interesting observations, but they all have very different reasons for why that is. So in breast cancer, it's a very low mutational burden. In ovarian cancer, there are immune deserts where there's a very different likely mechanism restraining the immune response. Same for pancreatic cancer. So, so I don't, what, what I don't do you, know what, that so, I... So this is, a, this is a great... So what do you mean by an immune desert? So there are likely molecular drivers that prevent the presence of active immune cells in those particular diseases? All immune cells? All, immune, All cells. immune cells. So when you profile those tumors, I think we saw a nice one. Was it the, the Mitra? Was it Mitra? One of them showed a nice profile. I think it was prostate. It was and prostate. what you saw was like Nothing. all blue. And that's, that's the hallmark of these immune deserts that include largely ovarian cancer so there are, and prostate I mean, there are, cancer. There are, there, are, there are plenty of certain cell types in ovarian cancer tumors. And um, so it depends on what you're... I think, I think since a lot of the immune checkpoints are T-cell directed, right? Yeah. <clears throat> um, uh, at least uh, the, by the mechanisms. I, I mean, I guess maybe the question asked a different way, I, I was wondering is, is, is there evidence that PARP inhibition leads to increased neoantigen burden, even, even in the BRCA-mutated uh, population? I mean, you, you've done a lot of sequencing yeah. um, of, of patients, perhaps some biopsies too? So I, I don't think there's any um, 
clear evidence that that happens in the clinic. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. There are preclinical experiments that are suggested, but there are equally preclinical experiments that, that don't agree with that. Okay. Are there any other questions for Darren? There's one at the end. It's not very IO focused, but uh, have you thought of combining the PARP inhibitors with uh, like lutetium PSMA 617, a beta emitter for prostate cancer, because the beta emissions would cause single strand breaks and maybe these two will work together? Yes, I, I mean, there's no, um, so we thought of combining it with everything in prostate cancer, basically. But there's no active study there. Thank you. Great. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Darren. I hope you enjoyed that podcast from the 2019 IO Combinations 360 conference. For more information, visit iocombinations360.com.